Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, um, I do have a stutter. So I have this little thing here that, um, that helps me. Um, and so uh, maybe right now it doesn't sound like I do, but uh, um, when... Yeah, anyway. Okay, let's turn to... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and we're, we're still going through our series um, on joy, living life without flip-flops, living a steady and a firm life without flip-flopping back and forth, without being run by our emotions. How can we do that? Well, we get lots of cues, lots of keys in this wonderful letter. So we're on Philippians chapter 2, verses 12, uh, which says this, um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or or disputing, that you may be blameless may be blameless and and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even... If I, am being, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. What a thing to say. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And then he goes on a bit um, and he talks about these two very key people. One is Timothy, one is Epaphroditus, and how they've really helped him and how they've really encouraged him and how they've also gone through their own hardships, Uh, one of them even uh, becoming so ill that they wondered whether he would actually live. So, uh, But I won't read that because I really want to focus on the first few verses. So, here are three things which we see in this section in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. That's the first one. Work out your salvation. Number two is shine like stars. And number three is I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works within you. Shine like stars, number two. And number three, I am glad and rejoice with you. Now, some of you ran the Great Goal Run yesterday. Hands up if you ran the Great Goal Run. Norman, Cody, Jane, excellent. And uh, and there were people who ran a 2K, there were people who ran a 5K, there were people who ran a 10K. And they trained and they exercised and they focused and they did it. And it was amazing to watch person after person cross over that line. And there were some who made it look so easy. And there were some who were nearly on their last legs. We also have Hudson and we have Jolene who also ran it. So, uh, yeah, and we we also had Aubrey who ran it. So there was a good representation from our church. And there were some who made it look so easy. And there were some who crossed it like they were on their last legs, sweaty and red and nearly fainting. And they ran straight over to the water table. They grabbed that water and they chugged it like their life hinged on that water being there, which maybe 
It did. And it was inspiring, you know, to watch this. And I was there. And I was working my muscles by lifting a cup of coffee up to my mouth. And I was there, and I was lifting weights. And I was, I was working my mouth muscles by talking to people, by engaging with people. I was straining to hold my dog back from other dogs so that he wasn't too much of a pain. And I was clenching my hand muscles as I shook hand after hand after hand in that crowd. It was not an easy morning, but I managed to get through it. And yesterday wasn't just the second annual Great Gore Run. It was also the close of the Invictus Games held in this province. It was the end of a hugely successful week in which 1,500 people volunteered their time and their skills. 550 people actually took part. And 17 nations were represented in 12 sports. And for those who don't know, the the, the Invictus Games is an Olympic-style event for those uh, who've been wounded or injured or have been sick due to serving in, uh, in, in armed forces. So it's a, it's a hugely inspiring event. And uh, here's Harry and what Harry said, because Harry's, Harry's the guy who kind of got it all started up. And, and what he said is that Invict- Invictus is about the dedication of the men and women who served their countries, confronted hardship, and refused to be defined by their injuries. Invictus is about the families and friends who faced the shock of learning that their loved ones had been injured or fallen ill and then rallied to support them on their journey to recovery. And then he said this, which I love, in a world where where so many have reasons to feel cynical and feel apathetic, I, Harry, wanted to find a way for, for veterans to be a beacon of light. And show us that we all have a role to play. That we all win when we respect our friends, neighbors, and our communities. That's why, Harry said, we created Invictus. Not only to help help veterans recover from their physical and mental wounds, but also to inspire people to follow their example and listen to these three words of resilience, of optimism, and service in their own lives. Resilience, optimism, and service in their own lives. It's to inspire us. And here today, I'm faced with a room full of people who may not have fought for freedom in in physical wars. Maybe you have, but most of us haven't. But for sure, all of us have been in battle after battle after battle. And some of you still still have the, the war wounds and the scars that you earned there on the battlefield. And Harry said that veterans can be a beacon of light. Paul encourages us to shine like stars. Therefore, my beloved, what a wonderful thing to say. He's not writing to one person. He's writing to a church and he calls his church, my beloved, as you have Always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I still remember waiting for that moment when Maya would walk. And I remember the impatience I had to see her up and about and moving. And I remember the excitement I felt at her first steps. And it took place on the missionary ship Logos Hope, where we lived. And we were in Manila, in the Philippines. 
And for those who know me, it comes as, as no surprise that I captured this on video, which we're watching now. Her name's Rachel. What's your name? My name's Rachel. Rachel. Maya. Emily. Emily and. Ariana. All right. And today. She's is not changed. Maya's first real day of walking. She walked four steps a couple of days ago, but this is it for real now. So. There we are in the dining room of the MV Logos Hope, a, a missionary ship, 400 people from 60 nations where Wendy and I served for, for, for four years. And I can think of no more wonderful illustration of verse 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2 than this, what we watched. Because think about it, Maya was working out her mobility with fear and trembling, and just a little bit of excitement. She was doing something that she'd never done before. Uh, she was stepping out in faith in a powerful way. And she was being transformed from a crawler to a walker. She was working out herself. It was her muscles at work. It was her brain coordinating her clumsy movements. It was her inside ear that, that, that kept her from falling over that much. It was her will that kept her going. It was her determination. Maya took this responsibility for vertical mobility on herself. But wait. It was Rachel and Emily who were there. They were the ones who were calling her to themselves. They were the ones with the arms stretched out, ready to catch her should she fall. They were the ones who chose to train her in the safety of the dining room rather, on the, rather than on the quayside with a 10-foot drop into filthy harbor water. They are the ones who, who, who joined as a team, who coordinated their work who encouraged Maya. They set aside time to invest in Maya. They loved Maya too much to leave Maya a crawler for the rest of her life. And so Maya can credit herself with the fact that she's now able to walk. And Maya can credit Emily and Rachel with the fact that she's able to walk. She worked out her mobility with fear and trembling. Rachel and Emily worked with her. And why, why did Rachel and Emily help her? To will and to work for their good pleasure. Because they wanted to, because it made them happy. And that's what we see in these wonderful verses, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2. We are responsible for working out our salvation. But God is working in us. God is even, he even gives us the will. He even makes us want to work out our salvation. If you, if you want to draw closer to God, that's not because of you. That's because God is putting that in your heart. Listen to how the New Living Translation words it. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you. He is giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. What an amazing truth. So if you are in Jesus here this morning in this church within hearing, within hearing distance of my voice, then God has placed a responsibility on you. Work out your salvation. If you're not growing in him, if you're still crawling around like a spiritual little baby, it's your responsibility. If you can't handle anything more than blended baby food, that's your fault. If the Bible never grips you, 
never convicts you, never fills you with awe, if, you're, if your attention span is so small for spiritual things, but you can spend hours watching Netflix or fixing stuff or playing a video game, but you hardly spend a minute even reading the word, then there's something wrong with you. Either your growth is stunted as a Christian, or you're not a Christian yet. Because God can only give the will and the desire to do what pleases him to people who are his. So if you have no desire at all to work out your salvation, then things are seriously wrong. On the outside, you may look like a healthy, successful, self-made individual, but actually your soul is shriveled and malnourished. If the things of God do not excite you or grip you ever, I'm not talking about you know, having an off day or an off week or even an off month. We all have those. But if the things of God never excite you, never fill you with awe, then it's time for you to do some, some soul searching. You have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work it out. You have to put the effort in. You have to read your Bible. You have to pray every day. Because when you do that, you grow and you grow and you grow. That's what working out your salvation looks like. But that's not the whole image. Because the other images of God working within you to will and to actually do it. This means that God, he, he gifts you, as I said, with the power and the desire to serve him. Because, because it has to be you working and it has to be God working. Because if it's just you working, then you'll burn yourself out. And if it's just him working, then you'll be one of those sedentary, flaccid people with muscle atrophy and bed sores waiting for God to come and flip you over. Because you don't have the life within you to actually do it yourself. It has to be both. God working. You working. Someone once said this. You cannot... Bloop. Can we go to the next slide? Okay, here we go. You cannot steer a parked car. Or for me, in my maritime life, you cannot steer a ship that's not moving. So you cannot steer a parked car. For us who are in Christ, we've received the message of the gospel. We know the truth that Jesus offered himself up as our substitute, that he took the ruined relationship that we had with God and that he instead gave us a perfect relationship that he had with God. It was this substitution, this trade And as we accept this exchange in faith and in gratitude, it becomes our reality. This is the gospel. And as I said last week, if you were here, Jesus moved into the slums and he died at the hands of the slum dwellers so that he could lift us out of the dirt and the filth and the smell and so that he could give us new life. This is the salvation that is ours if we've placed our faith and trust into the hands of the Lord. This is what Philippians chapter 2 last, last, last week, verse 6 to 11, that Jesus hymn that I talked about, that's what it's all about. We've received our salvation. We've received it. It's ours. Now we have to work it out. We, we, we have to take the message of the gospel and we need to apply it to every area of our life without exception. And how do we do that? With fear and trembling. Why with fear and trembling? Or as a New Living Translation puts it, obeying God with deep reverence and with fear. 
Why do we have to do this with fear and trembling? Why not with joy and happiness? Why not with a light-hearted feeling and a skip in our step? Why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, in Psalm chapter 111, or Psalm 111, verse 10, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So fear is what, fear of God, deep reverence for God, seeing him as supreme over the universe and your life is where true wisdom starts. True wisdom does not exist outside of that. You see, Jesus lays claim to every part of our lives. It's like we heard last week. Because of his death and resurrection, Jesus has assumed this, this, this title, Lord. Yeah, I said it's the name which is above every other name. And because he's assumed this title, Lord, we bow and we, our knee bows, our knees bow and our tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that has to include you. There is no halfway in, halfway out. So if you think about Paul's flow of thought, and I'd like you to, to look at the scripture as I'm, as I'm just trying to explain Paul's flow in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 12 in this Christ hymn, Paul gives a brief outline of Jesus' life, verse 6 to 12, gives a brief outline of Jesus' life from being in glory at the Father's side, down to earth, and then to he died. And not only died, but he died on the cross. So he's going down and down. He went down into the grave. And then he rose again. He ascended back to the Father. Now he's got this, 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 this new name, which is above every other name, Lord. And he ends the Christ hymn with this picture of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then, this is important for us to hear, Paul then links verse 6 through 12 with what we're hearing here Now, with the word, therefore. So because of what we read in verse 6, verse 6 through 12, therefore, this, what we're reading now, is important. So what that means is that because Jesus earned the title Lord by moving into the slum and lifting us out of the slum, he took the consequences of your lifetime of sin and of my lifetime of sin, and therefore, verse 12, we must obey. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, we must assume this responsibility for personal growth, taking faithful step after faltering step after faltering step after faithful step with, with deep assurance that it's the very resurrection power of Jesus Christ that is giving us the power to take these steps that it is God who, who works in us, both to want to and to actually do his will. And so we're left with a cycle in our head that never stops spinning. It's not, it's, it's me working, but it's God working, but it's God working, but it's me working, but it's me working, but it's God working, but it's God working, but it's me working. And that should never stop. You should never rest and say, now I understand it. Because each one flings you onto the next reality. It's me working, but I can't do it by myself. But it's God working, but I have a responsibility. So it's me working. And that should go on for the 70, 80, 90, 30, 40, 15 years that you live here on this earth. You should be wrestling with that. Because knowing that it's God working keeps us from legalism. Thinking I have to do it to earn God's favor. But knowing that it's me working keeps us from laziness. 
thinking I don't have to do anything. And God wants us to steer clear of both legalism and laziness, which is why he says, I'm working, you're working, I'm working, you're working. And so as we take these little baby steps forward and as we grow in strength and maturity, you know what we always see in front of us? The face of the Father smiling. That's what we see. And he's saying one more step. That's it, one more step. You can do it, one more step. He empowers us because seeing us walk in faith gives him real pleasure. It makes him happy as we read in verse 13. He steadies us. He watches us with the caring eyes of a father. And when we falter and fall, he picks us up and sets us on our feet again. We repent. He forgives. And we keep on going. This is the life of faith. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about me. And what I know about me is that when I'm innocent, I grumble. When I'm blameless, I whinge and whine. When I know that I'm actually guilty, I'm strangely quiet. But when I'm innocent, I grumble. What do I mean? What I mean is this. When I know that I've been falsely accused or badly treated of something, my immediate response is to rush to my, my own defense. Whoa, just, just, whoa, hold on there. You don't understand. What do you mean by that? Anyways, because this is our instinctive human response. No one likes being misrepresented. No one likes to have a, have a bad picture painted of them. We resist this, and so we express our outrage, and we try our hardest to clear our name, which is why I believe that Paul uses grumbling or disputing or, or, or complaining as the litmus test for you to identify just how much you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and how much you're allowing God to work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because isn't it strange that Paul follows on this amazing insight into God working and us working, and then he seemingly and then he goes on to these trite, seemingly trite words in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It feels like Paul has just touched the very ceiling of our understanding of what holy living looks like. He's talking about God working and us working, and then he's run out of steam, and so he gives us a bit of a Sunday school lecture on not complaining. But like I said, what I think is happening here is that, is that, is that the amount of grumbling and complaining is the surefire and the dead certain litmus test on how much control God has over your life. What if we were to point some sort of a bellyache meter at any particular person and this would be irrefutable evidence of their sanctification or that or lack thereof? What if the less you complain, the, the more holy you are and the more you complain, the less holy you are? And it's not just because complaining is sinful, which it you, which it can easily become, but it's also because complaining is an indicator of a deeper reality. Complaining is a kind of a symptom, and there's nothing that will sap the joy out of an individual more than complaining. And that's what I think Paul is warning against here. 
Because what does scripture say about complainers and God's response? In Numbers chapter 11 verse 1 it says this, um, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And when the fire of the Lord, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So here's the thing, is that as long as our lives are identified by a, by a disposition or a leaning towards or a bent towards complaining, we are demonstrating the fact that we are the center of our universe and that we're worshiping ourselves. And notice that I said a bent towards complaining because I'm not talking about getting a little bit disgruntled because we feel that we got a bit of a bum deal. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about people who've seen you know, the goodness of God and have witnessed him act on their behalf and then they still find something to whine about. They're only happy when it rains. That's another song that I liked from the 90s. Um, l- look it up. Uh, the, the chorus goes, pour your misery out on me. Great, fantastic stuff. I'm really glad I left that music there and found Wendy, source of joy. So, uh, so they're only happy when it rains. They, they always seem to, to find a, a sort of joy from sharing with you the never-ending list of their hard lot in life. Their existence is a series of unfortunate events. They have a resting, grumpy face. And what Paul is saying is that a Christian who has a lifestyle of complaining is an oxymoron. Paul is saying that there should not be room for grumbling or complaining. And he's just spent chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, explaining um, that a church who understands that Jesus made himself nothing will also make themselves nothing. That's why uh, verses 1 through 12, that Christ him exists is so that the church that understands that Jesus made himself nothing will also make themselves nothing. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This church who has the same mind that Jesus had will be of the same mind, having the same love, and will be in full unity, full accord. The church that has this mind among themselves that was in Jesus will do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility will consider others more significant than themselves. So the church that looks like the Lord that they kneel before and confess will be full of people who make themselves nothing, who take the form of a servant, who will be obedient up to the point of of death, even death on a cross. And Paul takes this phrase in verse 8 about Jesus. He says he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. And then he says in verse 12, as you have always what? Obeyed. So now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this is incredible because what this means is that the evidence of Jesus humbling himself was a life of what? Obedience. And then Paul draws a a link, a direct link between us working out our salvation and us living a life of of obedience, just like Christ. So this salvation, which we've received from, from Jesus, that he purchased by his, his obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, we prove our salvation through our obedience. We don't earn it through our obedience. 
but we prove it through our obedience. We show that the obedient spirit of Christ lives in us through our obedience. And, it's, and this obedience to the Father looks like this. Verse 14, a grumble-free and complaint-free life. Verse 2, a life that lives in unity and love and one accord. Uh, Verse 3, a life that is absent of selfish ambition or conceit. Verse 4, a life that in humility considers us more significant than ourselves. That's what that life looks like. This is the sanctified life. This is the life in which God is visibly and clearly alive and well and doing something miraculous. So, if you want to know if you are growing in the faith or if you're stagnating, point this meter, this complaining meter or the bellyache meter at yourself. Look in the mirror and be honest. And where you need to, confess and repent. But maybe you're saying, but how can I do this? I don't have the power to. I've tried before. My parents were complainers, so I'm a complainer. I'm just the unfortunate fruit of a society of complainers. But you see what's happening there is we can even complain about the unfair state of affairs that have led us to become complainers. So let me stop you there and point you back to verse 12, which says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you're in Jesus, your power or lack thereof to stop sinning is not the final word. Why? Because you have God working in you. Maya had Rachel and Emily there to get her mobile. The resource that you have in Jesus is far, far, far more amazing. First, because it's God himself, not a couple of Irish teenage girls. And secondly, because he isn't outside of you. He's living in you. He's, he, he's not there a few meters away from you saying, come on, come on, come on. He's in you like some sort of a, a combustion engine driving you on. He's the greatest force in this universe. He's the creative genius that brought this universe into being. He's, he's, he's the very mind that brought you into being. He's the one who formed your inward parts, who knitted you together in your mother's womb. He's the one who identifies you as fearfully and wonderfully made. He's the one who saw your unformed substance. He's the one who wrote every day of your life in his book before one of them actually came to be. And he's in you. He's in you. Can you imagine what it means to have the burning, holy, creative, all-powerful, omnipresent, all-knowing, good, perfect, kind, ferocious, angry, merciful, unchanging, triune, transcendent, loving, jealous, sovereign, patient, faithful God living in you? Because he's not in you like some sort of a passive spirit, like a genie waiting for you to rub so that he springs into life. He's already working. He's already working. And do you know what scripture tells us about God and when he works? It tells us this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what God tells us about his working and his his power. He cannot be stopped. So your circumstances need not be fuel for your complaints. If Romans 8 verse, verse 28 is true, then the circumstances are the very place 
where God is working out his purpose in your life. There is meaning to them. He is purposing them. He has crafted them. And what is his goal through these circumstances? To conform you to the image of his son, which brings us full circle back to the beginning, that Jesus' incarnation, his humiliation, his death, and his resurrection are to be the blueprint for our life, that God is all about conforming us to the image of his son. This is his grand, his glorious, and his crazy goal that we would be conformed to Christ's image. And, and what Jesus obtained in his death and resurrection is applied to us who are in him. And in response to having this, this wonderful truth and reality applied to us, we, we get to, we don't have to, we get to live out a God-powered, Christ-like life. A life that is selfless and not self-seeking. A life that is humble, not haughty. A life that counts others as more significant than ourselves. A life that empties itself and makes itself nothing. What we learn through this is is that a sanctified life looks like this. It's a life that empties itself, number one. And it's a life that is filled with the power of God. You cannot have number two without number one. It's a life that empties itself, and it's a life that is filled with the power of God, empty of self, full of of God. I must must decrease. He must increase. We We have treasure in a jar of clay. We have a priceless bounty in an earthen vessel. We are empty of self. We are full of God. God is working, and you are working reliance and responsibility, trusting in God and taking steps yourself, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it is this, it is this that that shines as a light in this world. It is this that shines as a light in the world. Verse 15 among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here is the reality, is that the extent to which you are allowing either bitterness or pride or envy or a complaining spirit to grow in your life is the extent to which not your life is dimmed, but our church light is actually dimmed. Because this letter wasn't written to an, to an, an individual. It was written to a church. And so... I encourage you, hold fast, verse 16, onto the word of life. You have to grip it with white knuckles. You have to carry it in your pocket into work. You you have to meet God in the Bible every day. You need to meditate on it. You need to memorize it. You need to absorb it. You need to let it be your source of nutrients. Let it be this light that chases out all the darkness and the shadows in your life and that makes your lumen count that much stronger. Earlier, I said that in the world's way of thinking, when we are blamed, but we're actually blameless, we've earned the right to complain. When we're innocent and when we're falsely accused in the eyes of the world, we earn the right to whinge and moan. But the Bible tells us something radically different. It tells us that as we are grumble-free, we become 
blameless. That as we resist the urge to argue, we become blameless. You, you can hear the difference there. The world says that, that our innocence in the face of injustice gives us the right to complain. And just to see that, log on to Facebook. But God says that as we resist the urge to complain in the face of unjust accusation, he counts us as blameless. Just ask the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as humans, we naturally assume that we're innocent. But God is not so naive. He assumes our fallenness. He assumes our depravity. He assumes our sinfulness. Therefore, every time that we resist the urge to complain, even though it might be in our rights to actually complain, this is clear evidence of God working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is proof that God is changing me. It is proof that I am his, that he is transforming me. And Paul says in verse 16 that as the Philippians worked out their salvation and as they shone like stars, like lights, that this was the joyous evidence that Paul's labor was not in vain. He's saying that because I can see this in your life, all of my pouring into your life and the suffering and the struggle and everything which I've, which I've had to go through, it's been worth it. He'd not wasted his life. And in verse 17, Paul uses the Old Testament language and, and says that he was glad to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. What a wonderful, wonderful picture. Their sacrifice with a marinade of Paul's sacrifice. And this is what causes him to say, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. So what do I see as I look out at you? Do I see a host of shining lights? Or in the words of Prince Harry, do I see beacons of light? What do you see as you look at me? Because as we take uncertain steps of faith and maturity, we know according to verse 13 that God is pleased with us, that we bring a smile to Father God's face. And as we, we, we say that we will fight against the spirit of complaining in our lives, in our family, and in our church, we know that we will be children of light without blemish and shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and a, crooked and a twisted generation. So, to close, I want to end with some words from Prince Harry, which he said to the people at the start of the Invictus Games. But I'm going to change them a little bit so it applies to us. Some of you have cheated death and come back stronger than before. Some of you have overcome emotional challenges that until recent years would have seen you written off and ignored. And now you are here in North Gore with your Bible in your hand, representing your heavenly country, supporting your, your teammates, and looking up into the stands and into the eyes of your friends and families, into the eyes of this great cloud of witnesses who are cheering you on. End of adjusted quote. Invictus means unconquered. And it's not we who are unconquered. It's Jesus who was unconquered and who is victorious. And for those who trust in him, his victory becomes ours. He is Invictus, therefore we are Invictus. And we will fall down now and again. 
but our legs will strengthen and our walk will become surer and more confident in the power of God working within us. We will be injured, we will bear scars, but just as Jesus was injured on our behalf and still bears his scars, we will move from taking one step to two steps to running a hundred yard run to running a marathon from running 2K to 5K up into 10K. And it is this journey that will eventually lead us home to God who became one of us so that we could become one with him. And just like every journey, whether that of a baby or a, or a recovering war veteran, this journey starts with one step. One step. 